Friends, the Christian life is a conflict, and we are constantly at war. The Christian life is a conflict, and you and I as Christians are constantly at war. If you are a believer in here tonight, you know that very well indeed, do you not? Not only this evening are we battling indwelling sin, indwelling sin, seeking to put to death that sin that still lingers in our lives. Not only is there that indwelling sin, but what else is true? We are also opposed from the outside, are we not? As the forces of sin and wickedness seek to wreak havoc on the church. Conflict from within and, and, and outside. The Christian life is a conflict we are constantly constantly at war. Well, this evening what we're going to do is consider this uh, fairly dark uh, portion of scripture that that Gabriel read for us uh, just now. And what we're going to see, I think here, what will emerge is the destructive nature of sin. What we'll see clearly is how sin is always seeking to destroy. And if you'll allow me to do this, let me just tell you how we're going to look at this uh, tonight. Uh, Really, this evening's sermon, you can imagine, I suppose, is in two parts. That we're going to look at this event, this throwing of a spear at David, from two perspectives. We'll first consider Saul, from his perspective, and the dangers of jealousy. And then we will flick things on their head. And we will look at this event from David's point of view, and we will consider the dangers of opposition. So do you see the dangers of jealousy, inward strife, and the dangers of opposition, outward strife? Two perspectives. You have it. Okay. First thing we need to look at is Saul, then. That's the first perspective. And the first sub-point, really, is to think about the foundations of jealousy. The foundations. That's our first of three sub-points we saw. The foundations of jealousy. Are you with me when I say that I love how this section starts off? Don't you love it? There is an awful lot of festivity going on at verses 6 and 7 here, isn't there? You've got this picture of warriors and they're returning victorious from battle. And do you see who meets all of these returning warriors? You've got all of the women of Israel. Now, they come out to meet the warriors. What do they do? Did you notice it? Are they just smiling and clapping their hands? It's not like that, is it? Do you see what they're doing? What they're doing is what was traditional, it would seem, for Israelite women, judging by Exodus and Numbers. And they are singing songs that they themselves have made up about the victory. Okay, isn't it beautiful? All this jubilation and dancing and singing is like an early Hillsong's uh, service, but with better theology, perhaps. <laughs> okay, now, I wonder if you perhaps made the same mistake that I made for a long time with this section of Scripture. For many years, I thought the women were mocking King Saul. You see this? Look at verse 7 with me. So what do they sing? They sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David 
killed his ten thousand. Do you see? I thought, I wonder if you were thinking this too. I thought it was derogatory. I thought that they were they were taking the mickey out of. Out. So it's not really like that. I mean, this is a case of parallelism that you would normally get in Hebrew poetry. So what the women are actually doing is they are praising both Saul and David. And do you know what? You could even go further than that. Do you notice who's meant first? Who gets the place of priority? And who do they go out to meet? They go out, it's Saul, isn't it? So if anything, it's he that's the primary focus of their song. So they're not mocking Saul. But here's the important thing. Nonetheless... How does he react? Would you look at verse 8 with me? So they are not deriding him. And look at verse 8. Now let's read it carefully, shall we? Verse 8. So Saul's angry. You're with me there. You see that. And it's displeased. Now let me read it to you. You follow it. They have ascribed to David tens of thousands. And to me they have ascribed thousands. Now listen to this. And what more can he have, that's David, than... The kingdom. Do you see what's happening here in this song? If you've been here for the sermon series, do you remember in chapter 15 what the prophet Samuel had done? Samuel had promised Saul, because of his disrespecting and disobeying God, that Saul was going to be replaced as king. Do you remember that? That a neighbor would replace Saul as king. And do you see what it is that Saul is recognizing in these women's song? He begins to see, hang on, it's this young lad, David, who's going to be the one to replace me. Do you see it? As they all sing and welcome the warriors, Saul realizes, begins to realize at least, hang on, this is the guy who's going to receive all the honor and all the praise instead of me. And, and how does Saul react to this? How does Saul re- react to this? He, he, he hates it. In fact, friends, how would you describe Saul's emotion in this portion of Scripture? What is this that we're dealing with tonight, friends? What is this? This is pure, unadulterated jealousy? Wouldn't you go along with that? I mean, this, this Saul is envious of this, Saul envious of this young guy, David. Now, for a moment, let me invite you into my world. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes when you are writing sermons... It is the application of a sermon that is the most tricky element of writing a sermon. Maybe do you see why it's like that? Let's say we're working through a book of the Bible and we'll get to a section that seems only relevant, seems only relevant to some people in the congregation. Do you see that? We work through a section of scripture and maybe it seems only relevant to those struggling with particular sins. Or it seems only relevant to younger people or older. You you see it? This is why I think you should sit up and listen tonight. From young to old, every single one of us in this room tonight is prone to the sin that we see before us on this page. Isn't that true? Every single one of us in here is prone to envy and jealousy. I mean, who here has not felt what Saul feels there? That inner anger. 
building up an envy towards someone else. Maybe somebody in the family. You've been there? Envy. <laughs> envy for somebody at school or university. Envy for people at work. Envy, I think, often towards people in God's church. Do you see what I'm saying to you? This is relevant. Even if you're tired or fatigued or distracted tonight, this is for you. This is relevant. So because of that, what do we do? If this is God speaking to us, what do we do? Tell you what we do. We pay attention to a second sub-point, the fruit of jealousy. Now, I wonder, friends, if you got the momentum. Did you get a sense of the momentum in this portion of scripture. Look at verse 10. You'll see exactly what I mean in verse 10. So we've been told one day Saul gets envious and he's jealous. Look at verse 10. The very next day. So just like a few hours later, after that envy starts, just a few hours later, what does he do? He acts on his jealousy. Now follow me. What is the action? What does the jealousy lead to? The spirit, you remember the disruptive spirit from a couple of weeks ago? It afflicts Saul again, and you see him, picks up a javelin, or picks up a spear, not once, but twice, he tries to take David's life. I love how verse 11 puts it, do you see it? Remember the word, Saul tries to pin David, tries to pin David to the wall. Now, I've said to you as a congregation that I think that this is relevant to you. I definitely think this is relevant to me. I wonder if you sense here and see the specific message that we are hearing from Scripture and for God tonight. Is it not this? That jealousy, if we allow it to settle in our lives, it gives birth to greater sin. Isn't that what you see from Saul? That if we allow envy to ferment in our lives, if we allow jealousy to set up home in our hearts, what happens? It almost always leads to greater, more sinful activity. And wouldn't you agree that that is also what we see more generally from sin? I mean, think about David. You know First and Second Samuel, don't you? What happens later with David? Do you remember? There's this lust. How do we think about that? Oh, well, it's just a bit of lust. It's not that big a deal. Where does it go? What does it lead to? It leads to action. It leads to adultery and murder. What about in the New Testament? What about Judas? Ah, oh, it's Jude. It's just greedy, is it? Well, see what happens. It, it, it festers. He allows it to ferment in his life. And what is it? It leads to action. It leads to the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, what does James chapter 1 tell us, friends? Desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, what happens? It gives birth to death. Friend, Do you see the message in the text for you tonight? Do you? Is there sin in your life? Are you allowing it to set up home and fester and ferment? Is that it? 
Don't you see you must attack that? Through confession, through prayer, through immersing yourself in God's word, that sin must be attacked lest it lead to more ungodly activity. So we see the foundation and we see the fruit. Third thing, third sub-point, we see the focus of jealousy. Here let me just pose a question for you. Why in 1 Samuel 18 is Saul jealous of this young man, David? Why is he jealous? Remember what I've said, he's jealous because he's beginning to sense that David is God's anointed and God's, eh, or he's going to be the king. But there is, a, you know how much I love a repeated phrase in scripture, don't you? I'm always banging on about repeated phrases. I wonder if you noticed that there is a repeated phrase time and time again in this section. I was going to ask uh, the younger people to see if they could get it, but we're a bit down numbers through illness for the younger ones, but maybe Colin and Maisie and a few others can see if they can find the repeat phrase. So it's been mentioned a couple of times. Then have a look at verse 12. Why is Saul afraid? Why is Saul jealous? You see it? Verse 12. Then look to verse 14. So it's about four times that this phrase is repeated. Do you see what's going on? Why is Saul envious? Why is he jealous? Because, friends, God is exalting another instead of him. Saul is envious. Why? Because God's favor was on him, and now God's favor has transferred to... Why is Saul jealous? Because it is another that is God's anointed king. And with that, I want to speak to you tonight if you are not professing Christian. Is that you this evening? Interested maybe, but not a professing Christian. I want you to see that that there great problem of humanity. Scripture tells us, doesn't it, that the sin that has entered the world through Adam has catastrophic consequences. It has scarred humanity. Do you see, though, in 1 Samuel 18, one of the most fundamental corruptions that sin has manifested in human nature? Now, all humanity is spiritually envious. Isn't that it? about by our very sinful nature that we are jealous of God's chosen king. Now you know that to be true if you're honest with your heart. We love the limelight by our sin. We want to be the center of attention. We want the spotlight on us. We cannot the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who deserves the attention, deserves all the honor, all the praise. Do you see the point? There is, at the very heart of man, a jealousy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian this evening, how I would ask you 
to ponder that with some seriousness this evening. To consider that it is by your very nature, not just by your actions, but by your nature, that you offend the Lord God Almighty, and perhaps even tonight to come on bended knee to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing of your sin. So we see the, the dangers of, of jealousy. Now, I was speaking to uh, my wife about books a couple of days ago. And my wife is reading a book called A Thousand Splendid Sons. I don't know if you've heard of it. I don't you might even have read A Thousand Splendid Sons. So I asked her just in passing whether she was enjoying reading this book and she said she was primarily because of the device the author uses in the book so he does something quite clever really Uh, each chapter in the book tells an event from a different perspective you can imagine it one character in one chapter another character in the next chapter right the way through the book or so i think could be wrong that's what i want us to do here Now, we've seen this throwing of a javelin in jealousy and envy, and we've seen it from Saul's perspective, right? Well, what I want us to do is to flick this whole story on its head, and now to think about this event from the perspective of God's anointed, from the perspective of David. And as we do that, the first sub-point here to think about is the reality of opposition. Now, We have all had bad days in the past. I'm sure you can think back on a a day that has not gone so well. I was trying to think of examples and it didn't didn't take me too long to think of a bad day. I remember not all that long ago that I managed to lose uh, my car keys. They turned up, that's not too big a deal. I managed to lose my car keys, some cash, and temporarily one of my children, uh, very, don't tell my wife, and it was very temporary. But I managed to do that all before about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So it was a particularly bad day. Now, as we focus and think about David, I want you to, to consider what a bad day he's having. Now, do you see in the flow of the text that so much of this happens in a 24-hour period? What we've looked at over the last few weeks is all that seems to be the one day. Think about how bad a day that is. Like he has been forbidden from going home to see his father. And he has been forced to live in the palace. He's then, same day, a few hours later, he's had a near-death experience with a spear twice. Then do you see how it ends? He is now then kicked out of the palace again. And he is forced into military service. So you with me? It kind of makes our bad days pale in insignificance, doesn't it? This is, this is, what is it? What is it? It is a day of ferocious, fearful opposition. And I long for you as a congregation to see that therefore what is before you tonight is really a picture of the Christian life. That if you and I, like David here, are seeking the glory of God, what is going to happen? We are going to face, like here, irrational, but in 
intense persecution and opposition. And I tell you this, as your minister, I worry. I worry that we in relatively comfortable situations in London in the 21st century, I wonder if we don't lose sight of that reality all too often. The reality, now listen please, the reality that unlike the people out there, and unlike the rest of the people in your life, that a characteristic of your life between now and your death is going to be the hostility that you face for your faith. It will be a characteristic. It will be something that is part of your life going forward. That what does scripture say? It says that, even from word one, almost the beginning of Genesis, that there is a line of Cain that seeks to attack the line of Abel. That we get into the New Testament, and what do you hear from Jesus? That because the world hated him, that it will hate you as well. Isn't it something? And do you see what that means for us practically this evening? It means that as we go into London tomorrow, as we go into our lives this week, you and I should be prayerful. That we should not be taken aback by the opposition that we face. That we shouldn't be surprised if people at school and people at university and people in the workplace, people in your family, people in your church, that we shouldn't be surprised if, like David, they hurl spears at us. Hostility, opposition is a reality for the people of God if we are seeking his glory. But then we also see the method of opposition. There's a really intriguing detail in the text. I'll show you. It's right at the beginning. First words of verse 6. If you have a look at those, when does this opposition take place? I find it remarkable, but it's intriguing, isn't it? This whole event, this javelin being hurled at David, it happens almost immediately after his victory over Goliath. Isn't that remarkable? He faces Goliath's javelin in battle. And just moments later, he also has to deal with Saul's javelin hurtling towards him. Isn't it in that detail? But isn't it also so informative for the people of God tonight? Because what do we see in that? Surely we see Satan's strategy of attack. Isn't it? That so often, what does Satan do? Yes, he attacks us when we are at low ebb. Yes, he does that. What else does Satan so often do? He attacks us when we are riding a wave of victory in Christ Jesus. Don't you know that? Isn't that your experience in your Christian life? You know what it's like. We have a wonderful day of worship and praise. You know, a a day where we can almost touch the presence of God in corporate worship and we are rejoicing And what happens. The very next day we are opposed and we fall into despicable sin. 
about those times of personal devotion. You know those times. The times where you're almost weeping with joy when you're praying and reading scripture. What happens next? You find yourself fighting arguing with somebody you love. You see it, opposition comes on the back of victory and joy all too often. And again, isn't that what scripture prepares us for? Think of the Garden of Eden. It is immediately after God provides the spouse for Adam. Immediately after that, what happens? Satan appears. Yes. Opposition on the back of victory and Joy, or what about our first reading tonight? When did Satan appear? When is the testing in the wilderness immediately on the back of that glorious intra-Trinitarian moment of fellowship and the baptism of Jesus? Friend, I'm saying to you tonight, if you are rejoicing in Christ, riding this wave of victory in Jesus Christ, wonderful. But be on your guard. Be prayerful. Be ready for the attacks of the evil one. And then we close. We close with the use of opposition. Should we be scared? Should we be scared? Well, consider how this section of scripture closes. What happens is that David escapes twice. He evades Saul twice. How that looks, I'm not sure. He is then kicked out of the palace. But would you do this with me? Would you look at verse 13? We're we're closing with this. Where does David end up in verse 13? We are told that he receives a promotion. (laughs) That's what happens, isn't it? Through this opposition, this persecution, he is placed in charge of 1,000 troops. Now, what does that promotion mean? If you read on, look at the end of verse 13. This is a critical part. He's promoted, but now he is in the public eye. That through this persecution and opposition, David is now thrust into the limelight. So by the end of this section, not only is he favoured by God... But he is receiving the attention and the favor of the people of Israel. Now I think this. I think that that should encourage you greatly tonight. Because what does it teach you of your God? Our God is a God who uses the opposition his people face. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that gracious? He uses the persecution. He works through the opposition. And he uses it for good. Now, that should encourage us tonight for life in London and this atmosphere we face of hostilities towards the church. It should encourage us. What else should it do? Friends, that there should point you tonight to the cross of Calvary. Because do you not see a Golgotha the very same thing? God using opposition for goodness. Would you listen, please? What do you see when you look at the cross? You see that like David, the Lord Jesus Christ was God's chosen one, was he not? He was, yes, the anointed king. What else, though? Like David there, he faced irrational, intense, 
hatred of men. What else? Unlike David, the Lord Jesus Christ did not evade the persecution that voluntarily for us he was pinned. As those nails pierced his hands and his feet. But as we look at Calvary, don't we see that their God was using that persecution and opposition? And for what? What would you say? For our salvation? Hallelujah, it is true. What was God doing through the persecution? He was there promoting his king. Isn't that right? Through that great gospel work at Golgotha. What shall one day be true? That our king shall be thrust into the limelight. That all people everywhere shall see this king. And he will receive all acclamation. And all due praise. Friends, tonight, be sure of this. That sin has destructive tendencies. Do not allow it to fester in your life. But know this all the more. At the cross of Christ Jesus, it was sin that was defeated and defeated by the grace of our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the lessons you give us in your words. We thank you that you give us fuel for our fight and battle against sin in our sanctification. But we thank you that in your word, time and time again, you point us to Calvary. You remind us time and time again of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We thank you that though our sins be like scarlet, in Christ they are as white as snow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.